Donald Trump and his lawyer, Alina Haba, are sanctioned almost $1 million by a federal judge in Florida for filing a frivolous lawsuit back in March of 2022 against Hillary Clinton and about a dozen other individuals. We've been covering the sanctions motions and the dismissal by the federal judge in that matter. But this sanctions order is scathing. You will not want to miss our breakdown. Stay tuned. And as we break down the law, Popak, Trump is breaking down in real time. He is swirling. He's just, he's just breaking down. <laughs> he is swirling the drain. He is dripping desperation. He is weak. Following the sanctions order by the federal judge in Florida, Donald Trump immediately dismissed another frivolous lawsuit that he filed and that we've been covering here on Legal AF. That's the frivolous lawsuit he filed against New York Attorney General Letitia James in Florida, which just so happened to also be assigned to the same federal judge, Judge Donald Middlebrooks, who just sanctioned him $1 million. The lesson is clear, folks. Trump is a coward. You stand up to him like Judge Middlebrooks did, and he backs down like the coward that he is. And meanwhile, a federal judge in New York unsealed more pages of the deposition transcripts from Donald Trump's deposition in the E. Jean Carroll civil rape and defamation lawsuit, which is set for trial this April. And in new stunning deposition transcript pages that were just released, Donald Trump reprehensibly says on some of the pages that he could not have raped E. Jean Carroll because she is not his type. Disgusting. But then on additional deposition transcript pages, when he's shown a picture of E. Jean Carroll from 30 years ago, he thought that what he was looking at, who he was looking at, is his ex-wife, Marla Maples. There was this Perry Mason moment courtesy of E. Jean Carroll's lawyers, Roberta Kaplan. And we turn back to Florida in this episode of Legal AF, where a federal judge found that Ron DeSantis violated the constitutional rights of the Hillsborough County prosecutor when DeSantis suspended him for being too woke because the prosecutor signed a petition saying he didn't believe that women should be arrested for having abortions. And the federal judge in making this scathing ruling against DeSantis, though, said that he was limited based on the United States Constitution about the remedies he could provide. In essence, he couldn't grant any remedy. So Popak, knowing your expertise uh, as a Florida lawyer, the question that everybody's asking is, what happens next for DeSantis and what happens next for this prosecutor? Well, what happens next for the United States Supreme Court? We'll focus on that in this episode of Legal AF as well, because the United States Supreme Court concluded its investigation into who leaked the Dobbs ruling? Of course, the Dobbs ruling despicably overturned Roe v. Wade, and uh, the leak occurred on May 2nd of 2022 to Politico. And the Supreme Court concluded they could not find the leaker. The Supreme Court investigation, however, did not really focus on the justices themselves. They weren't forced to sign any sworn affidavits. Well, I think, Popak, I can give you a Lido hint 
who may have leaked it. We'll talk about that here on Alito. the Legal AF <laughs> podcast. And Peter Navarro, the MAGA extremist Trump stooge, uh, who is set to go to trial for a contempt of Congress charge for not showing up in response to the January 6th committee's duly issued uh, subpoenas. He lost his motion to dismiss in humiliating fashion in federal court, and now he will head for trial for contempt of Congress, where I suspect that he's going to be summarily convicted very quickly, just like Steve Bannon. They don't say it's the most consequential legal news of the week for no reason, Popak. We got a lot of consequential news. How are you doing? Great looking glasses, Michael <laughs> Popak. You know, I saved my glasses comment until the very end intentionally of the last podcast so I could just close out with it. But, you know, the reality is if we're being objective here, I think mixed feelings about the glasses. I think overall it's grown on people. But if I'm just being blunt with you, I think in the last show in the chat, I would say it was mixed if I'm being fair. Well, the good news is I've been reading all the other hot takes and I'm running <laughs> nine to one in favor of the glasses. So it, it, the people have come around to this concept, but that's not why people tune into Legal AF about my eyewear or your fleece jacket. And boy, do we have a great things to talk about today. Two judges who took on DeSantis in one with Judge Hinkle and Donald Trump with Judge Middlebrooks. What? I mean, he's the jurist of the week for me. He might be the jurist of the of 2023 for me is Don Middlebrooks. And we're going to talk about that. But Hinkle did a great thing, too, because when we get into that DeSantis trial where everything went against him, except at the very end on jurisdiction, a lot of judges would have started with jurisdiction, punted the case and said, I don't have any jurisdiction and I'm not even going to bother with a bench trial. But Hinkle didn't want to do that. Hinkle wanted to get all those facts out just as Middlebrooks wanted to get all the facts out in a 50 or 60 page opinion so that the world and history could see it. And that's another thing that judges do that we don't give them enough credit for, which is to take on tyrants and take on vexatious litigants and bad faith litigants like Donald Trump and spell it out page by page methodically. And their opinion, I guess, is if I got to read all the crap that they file in their briefs, they're going to have to sit and read my federal judge order about what I think about all the crap that they filed. Just as people have come around to supporting your glasses, Michael Popak, <laughs> people, I think, are coming around to realizing that the wheels of justice are turning in the right direction. And we've been talking about other federal rulings and other uh, other outcomes that have reflected that. But I think nothing reflects it quite so much as this recent ruling by Judge Donald Middlebrooks in the Southern District of Florida. For all those out there who are new to Legal AF, one, what are you doing? But number two, Popak practices in Florida. So he has some local expertise well about the federal bench and the judiciary there. But this was a lawsuit that was filed by Donald Trump and his lawyer who filed it on his behalf, Alina Haba, who I I've said is probably the worst lawyer in the entire country because she thinks she's good, which adds an extra layer of problematic nature to it as she digs the hole deeper and deeper. But this was, I suppose, a 
It was framed as a RICO lawsuit, a, a, a racketeering style conspiracy, but it was basically the rantings and ravings of a lunatic of 189 pages of Donald Trump just complaining how people like Hillary Clinton and Comey and others hurt his reputation by linking him to Russia and that that was somehow an actionable claim that should go before our court systems and the federal court systems. Not only was there no claim actually being asserted, and as Judge Middlebrook said when he dismissed this federal lawsuit back in September, every single allegation was basically false. I mean, from the basic facts that they would say, this person lived in New York, but like the person lived in Virginia. This person chaired the DNC, like the person never even worked at the DNC. So like all of the claims were frivolous and basically all of the allegations were false. There was a previous sanction order by someone by the name of Charles Dolan, um, who got about $66,000 in sanctions a few months back, which we said, just you wait. That $66,000 sanction motion is just the tip of the iceberg because Hillary Clinton and about 18 others who got the case dismissed filed this uh, sanctions motion seeking a little more than $1 million. And you and I said, based on Judge Middlebrook's analysis of the previous sanctions order, where he said everything is frivolous, um, we said, I expect it's going to be close to the million dollars. You know, the judge may shave off a few thousand dollars here or there if he thinks the billing was unreasonable. And Popak, I think you and I almost nailed it almost to the dollar. Oh, I mean, yeah. it was slightly less than one million dollars. But for all intents and purposes, it's a million dollar sanctions order when you add up this one and the and the Dolan sanctions order. And it's an incredibly scathing order where the judge not only attacks Trump's frivolous filing here, but attacks all of the other frivolous lawsuits that Donald Trump had filed, including the one that also happened to be assigned to the same judge, Middlebrooks, in the Letitia James lawsuit. But Popak, can you break down this order? Because rarely do you see an order so scathing, and lots of the legal AFers have said, how do you stop these vexatious litigants? Like, how do you stop the conduct? Well, the fact that Donald Trump was the one who filed the lawsuit seeking money against others and he had to pay $1 million to the people he sued is one way you stop vexatious litigants. Popak, break it down for us. Yeah, I will. Thank you. As people know, I practice really in two places, New York, where I'm sitting now, and in Miami, where I spent 20 years. And I've been before Judge Middlebrooks and tried cases in front of him. And when he got originally assigned, you go back to the prior videos of ours, uh, we, you and I, um, and with my guidance, uh, the audience, were very encouraged by the fact that Don Middlebrooks had been assigned the case, all these cases. And so everything that flowed from having a really good jurist um, who's no nonsense, who's not MAGA, who's been on the bench for over 20 years. I, I think I tried my first case in front of him 25 years ago when he first got on as being, he was, he, he did what you and I did. He was a commercial litigator at a very well-known firm in my, in uh, West Palm beach. And then got elevated and sits in West Palm beach at the Southern district of Florida. And everything that we predicted has come true from the dismissal of the case 
against Letitia James and the New York Attorney General that got assigned to Don Middlebrooks, which got dismissed the same morning as his order came out. What I love about Don Middlebrooks, Judge Middlebrooks' decision in 46 pages is that there, he doesn't hold back. He went in with a blueprint. He, I'm sure he told his clerks. And Don, and Don Middlebrooks is known for writing. He was a very good writer when he was in private practice. So I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if he did the first or second draft of this order. And he had a couple of goals that he wanted to um, accomplish in the order. One, he wanted to lay out how, as a vexatious litigant, filing meritless cases all around the country, a lot with Alina Haba, he wanted all that in black and white. For both this order, for the exercise of inherent authority, which is the, which is the authority, this overarching authority of a federal judge or even a state judge to issue sanctions based on their inherent authority to make sure that the wheels of justice are greased properly and move in the right direction and that people aren't obstructing justice. That's where the inherent authority comes from. And it also comes from a finding of bad faith. That's what triggers, that's what Middlebrook said, triggers my inherent authority. Because he looked at the other places that he has authority to sanction people. Rule 11, we talked about that a lot on Legal AF, which really is backward looking, as, as Judge Middlebrook says. It's for stuff you did in the past that you refuse to withdraw after somebody brought it to your attention that it, it's without merit. And he said, there's, you know, the Defense of Trade Secrets Act and other things, there's ways for me to order sanctions, but the best way and most robust way for me as a federal judge to punish, punish Donald Trump and his lawyer, Alina Haba, is exercising my inherent authority. And that then just opened the door to him saying, let's talk about all the places in America where Donald Trump, usually with Alina Haba at his side, that he has brought meritless, bad faith litigation to obstruct justice. And he, he then listed them, <laughs> including the case, as you said, Ben, that was in front of him. He said, well, there's the Trump versus the New York Attorney General case that's in front of me that I've said is meritless. Um, and then you know, uh, Trump got the hint and dismissed it that morning. There's the case he filed in the Northern District of New York against Letitia James, which he also failed there. There's Trump versus Twitter. There's Trump versus CNN. There's Trump versus uh, the Pulitzer Prize Board filed in Okeechobee, this little town um, in sugar in sugarcane country in the middle of the state, right by Lake Okeechobee, which the judge commented in his order has no connection whatsoever to the Pulitzer Prize Board or to Donald Trump. In other words, he just threw a dart to get as far away. He didn't say this, but the implication was Donald Trump wanted to get as far away from Don Middlebrooks as a judge as possible. So he went up to Okeechobee and filed in state court. But he didn't get out of the ire of the judge because the judge went and tracked down all these cases and listed them. He also said, um, basically, I also watch television. And the way the Judge Middlebrooks communicated that is because he cited all the times that Alina Haba went on Tucker Carlson or Hannity or Newsmax or any of them and commented negatively and attacked Middlebrooks, this judge, any judge, um, and he had a very great quote that we've talked about in the past where he said that Alina Haba went on, I think it was Tucker Carlson, and said that Donald Trump, after we got assigned this, this left-wing Clinton-appointed Judge Middlebrooks, and he wouldn't recuse himself, um, it was a losing battle, and, Do and Donald Trump told me to get out of the case. But, but the way that Middlebrooks highlighted that in the order is 
you knew this case didn't have any merit and all you had was attacking me on network television on worldwide television. So if they thought that, that he doesn't watch television, he wasn't going to mention that in his order. He did. If he thought he wasn't going to mention all the other vexatious litigant uh, places and obstruction of justice, Donald Trump has done. And what, and he was very careful, Judge Middlebrooks. He said, I'm not sanctioning you per se for the Pulitzer board suit, the Twitter suit, the CNN suit, or all these other suits. But I have inherent authority and I can look beyond what's happened in this courtroom to see how you operate in the real world outside of Southern District of Florida. And what he came away with is the uh, the menu or the cookbook for Donald Trump, which he listed towards the end of his order. Middlebrook said there's basically six steps to Donald Trump. One, use provocative rhetoric in your filing. Two, use a political narrative that you get from your rallies. Three, attack opponents uh, in the news media. Four, uh, disregard legal precedent. Ignore case law when you file and case law that's against you. Five, fundraising, fundraising, fundraising. Use all of these techniques to raise money. And he cited and quoted to links to Donald Trump using the case with Middlebrooks and the case in the Pulitzer Prize Board and all these other places to raise huge sums of money. And six, attack the judge. And, and this is the, the owner's manual for Donald Trump in lawsuits. And I love the fact that forevermore, and this will be cited not just in the in Florida, but in every case around the country, because Middlebrooks is very well respected in the federal judiciary. It is now in 48 or 47 pages, the playbook, the the emperor has no clothes. This is what he does. And then finally, Ben, I love the fact that he made the $1 million or close to it. He shaved off about 15% of the amount that the attorneys were, were, uh, were asking for based on a little bit on hourly rate that they were charging, but not much. He thought the hourly rate was fine. A little bit on uh, the way some things were billed. I won't get into the minutia uh, on, on billing records. But overall, he, he awarded them you know, everything that they were looking for and made it what, what we call in the business joint and several liability, meaning both Alina Haba and Donald Trump are responsible to get that million dollars paid. And if, and if it, so I guess the good news for Alina Haba, if there's any, any good news is she can't allow her client to pay the million dollars. So she doesn't have to pay it. He didn't say Alina Haba a law firm has to pay 500,000 and Donald Trump has to pay 500,000. Probably he probably figures Alina doesn't have it anyway. So it's jointly and severally liable. So, I assume Donald Trump's going to pay the million. That's going to let them out from under this. If they don't pay the million, and they're going to pay the million, but if they don't pay the million dollars, then they're in contempt and criminal contempt of court, and then people can start going to jail. What's going to be interesting there, though, is Alina Hobb is going to have to have that conversation with Donald Trump if she hasn't had it already as to who is going to pay. You know, and one of the things that uh, the court did in making that joint and several liability, making them both responsible, kind of both throwing shade and also kind of pitting them against each other a little bit. Footnote 38 on page 46, the court writes, sanctions must never be hollow gestures. Their bite must be real. But for the bite to be real, it must be an amount a person can pay. I believe the monetary sanctions imposed here are well within plaintiff 
end plaintiff's lawyer's ability to pay. And therefore, I have not thought it necessary to conduct an intrusive inquiry into their finances. However, should plaintiff or plaintiff's lawyer and law firm believe that the amount would seriously jeopardize their financial status, that individual or firm should file within 10 days of this order under seal a verified statement of net worth, which includes assets and liabilities. In the event of such filing, the obligation of that individual or law firm will be told until further order of the court. And so saying, well, you say you're rich, so <laughs> you should be fine. But if you're not as rich as you say you are, you could come and you could submit an, an affidavit to me. We'll never deal. see that affidavit. <laughs> that will never be filed. <laughs> you know, one of the other powerful parts of this order, I thought, was on page six, where the court goes, here we are confronted with a lawsuit that should never have been filed, which was completely frivolous, both factually and legally, and which was brought in bad faith for an improper purpose. Mr. Trump is a prolific and sophisticated litigant who is repeatedly using the courts to seek revenge on political adversaries. He is the mastermind of strategic abuse of the judicial process, and he cannot be seen as a litigant blindly following the advice of a lawyer. He knew full well with the impact of his actions. He knew full well the impact of his actions. As such, I find that sanctions should be opposed upon Mr. Trump and his lead counsel. Language like that is going to be cited by people who Donald Trump sue across the country right now as ways to get sanctions in their case and to stop his vexatious lit litigation. So not only here did Judge Middlebrooks um, make an, an incredibly important order for this case, but for any future person who's sued by Trump or the Trump organization, they're going to cite this as precedent or just as a, its persuasive value to basically say, look, this is what federal judges are saying. And those bricks are being built. You know, for example, in the Letitia James case, one of the things that Middlebrooks cited before issuing the sanctions order when he denied a frivolous injunctive relief request by Donald Trump in his ridiculous lawsuit that he filed against New York Attorney General Letitia James in connection with the fact that she brought a fraud lawsuit in New York State Court against him seeking at least $250 million, the court said, look, the Trump organization's a felon. They were just convicted on 17 felony counts. I am not going to hurt the people of the state of New York by granting any injunctive relief to a felon organization. So brick by brick, those things are being built. And as I mentioned, the New York Attorney General Letitia James, uh, her fraud lawsuit against Donald Trump. So Donald Trump filed in Florida, um, in Palm Beach County. He filed a lawsuit against Letitia James after she sued him um, under the New York Attorney General statute, ostensibly to try to stop her from getting discovery in her case that she's entitled to have, which is before a New York state judge, Judge Arthur Engron. And there, you know, the, 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 there's, basically no jurisdiction at all for Donald Trump to bring this case against the New York Attorney General. There's no jurisdiction. There's no claims that he's being asserted. It just so happened to get assigned to the same judge, Judge Middlebrooks. And New York Attorney General Letitia James filed a motion to dismiss that case. 
And in the denial of the preliminary injunctive order, Judge Middlebrooks pointed out in a footnote on like the last page of his order, this is a frivolous case and you should dismiss it. Um, this was, what, about a month or so ago. Donald Trump did not dismiss it then. He still kept the lawsuit going. But as soon as Judge Middlebrooks issued this order sanctioning him a million dollars and citing the New York Attorney General Letitia James case in this recent sanctions order, what Trump do? He backs down. I want to get your take on that, Popak, because yeah. that is a pattern that we see of Donald Trump. You know, you remember leading up to the insurrection when Donald Trump wanted to appoint Jeff Clark as the head of the attorney, as the attorney general. What happened? All the United States attorneys kind of came together um, and they said, we're all going to resign if you do that. And what Trump do? He backed down. When you stand up to him and all of the ranting and the raving and his screaming and his tweeting or his social media posting, all of that is like, you know, you think about it on the, you know, going back to the schoolyard. And I hate to give analogies with petulant third grade bullies because I think it's offensive to petulant third grade bullies, but that's kind of who Donald Trump is. And the MAGA Republican Party has allowed themselves to be co-opted by the threats and by the fear. And it's like, just stand up to him and just say, no, you crazy idiot, you traitor. Like, get the hell out of here. Like, you just got to stand up to people like that. And I think Democrats and people who have left the Republican Party, I don't view it as a partisan issue because – I just think that the MAGA Republican Party is not really the Republican Party anymore. I mean, who knows what, what, what it's just fascistic and weird, but you know, you know, there's a pro-democracy movement of Democrats and Republicans, former Republicans and independents and people not affiliated with political parties who just go, no, no, you're wrong. And I'm calling you out for it. Yet the MAGA Republican Party just seems to just take it and take it and take it. And you give him an inch he goes for your throat. So you can't give this, you can't give this fascist want to be an inch. Popa. So let me do it this way. Um, and we're going to talk about it when we get to the E. Jean Carroll segment on this. And I practice law in New York around the same times that Donald Trump was running around as playboy developer Trump doing all sorts of bad things, including what he did to E. Jean Carroll. And so many of these things, when I was reading the deposition transcript, we'll get to next about what happened. A lot of it resonated with me because I knew her husband, E. Jean Carroll. He was a newscaster that I watched when I was a little boy on ABC News in New York. And I knew Elaine's, the restaurant where they went a lot. These are all kind of famous totemic places in New York. And I knew Trump Tower, I knew Bergdorf Goodman's. But there's the big difference. When Donald Trump ran what effectively was a family office, where everybody was either somebody he inherited from his father, like Weisselberg or Matt Calamari, or had the last name Trump because they were his children, um, and lawyers around him at the time, like Michael Cohen, there was no pushback. He said, I'm going to do this crazy thing. And they said, okay, fine, boss. And then don't forget to sign my paycheck at the end of the week. That's what he was used to for years and years of being a developer. When he took that to the White House, even though he brought in some crazy people into roles to support him, he couldn't bring the whole family office with him, but he tried the same techniques. I'm going to do crazy fascist insurrectionist things. He, this time though, he had people who were not beholden to him for their professional careers, nor their paycheck per se, 
And we've talked about like Pat Cipollone and others that were in the White House that at the moment of courage did the right thing by standing up to this tyrant. He's not, he wasn't used to that because for 30 or 40 years in New York, he surrounded himself with people that he paid to say yes to him for whatever they wanted to do. And now he, what we see a version of that is when he's a private litigant, is he only of course hires people that are sycophants and bootlickers for him. Alina Haba, which I don't know if you caught, and I caught it, I don't think we did a, a trending take on this. Did you catch, Ben, that in October, she was named special advisor to the new MAGA pack of his? And there was a quote from one of his, uh, one of Trump's uh, people that said, oh yeah, we trust Alina Haba, anything political, anything litigation, she's she's our person. So he surrounds himself with really kind of weak-minded people that are not going to stand up to him, who had no real professional credential as lawyers for anything substantial before he grabbed them. And the reason he grabbed them, even though these people don't want to admit it because, you know, it's a devil's bargain because, you know, she was she would never be on Tucker Carlson or Hannity if it wasn't for the fact that her client was Donald Trump. No one ever heard of her before a year and a half or two years ago. Same thing with the lawyer that he chose to file in Okeechobee against the Pulitzer board. Same thing against the lawyers that joined with Alina Haba, ticket in that was his roommate when he went to military academy. Um, that was his big claim to fame and wrote a book about his time with Donald Trump. This, or you know, John Eastman, Cleta Mitchell, Giuliani, you name it, these are bootlickers extraordinaire that, that he surrounds himself with who will not say no to Donald Trump. That didn't work for him in the White House. It almost did. But people had to stand up to the bully, as you said. And then his most, I, hate, I, I can't even say it, his most crazy ideas weren't implemented because a lot of ideas were implemented that were pretty crazy. But um, that's the difference. He was used to having people that, look, that kowtowed to him and, and bent their knee to him always because he paid their salary. So let's get into the release of these new portions of the deposition. We covered on the last Legal AF a, a number of the portions that were released in connection with another filing. And so here, basically because the judge had already decided that these types of deposition transcripts should be released, Judge Lewis Kaplan, federal judge in the Southern District of New York, again, Trump kind of backed down and basically said, well, you know, we, there's really no objection that we have to this because you've already ruled against us. So more portions of the deposition transcript uh, were released. And as I mentioned in the intro of the show, there was this moment that Lots of people are focusing on, and I want to focus on it here um, because I think it shows really kind of the two major prongs that E. Jean Carroll's lawyers are going to focus on in the trial, um, in addition to the compelling testimony of E. Jean Carroll about what took place. As I mentioned on the last Legal AF, one of the things that I thought E. Jean Carroll's lawyer did a great job on is asking Donald Trump to say, so you've called E. Jean Carroll's allegations against you a hoax. Is that correct? And Donald Trump said, yes, it's a hoax. And then uh, E. Jean Carroll's lawyer, Roberta Kaplan, said, you've also said a number of other things are hoax. Can you tell us that? And Trump took the bait and he goes, Russia, 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 Ukraine, Ukraine, Ukraine. He, he literally says it like that. I'm not, I'm not making that up. He repeats the 
the words and says it just like that. And then he goes on to say mail-in ballots are a hoax. The 2020 election is a hoax. Climate change is a hoax. So she established kind of prong one that if Donald Trump doesn't if something is inconvenient for him or is harmful to him, he just calls it a hoax. Here are things that are not hoaxes that he says are hoaxes. And this is another example where he's calling E. Jean Carroll's allegations a hoax, just like he's calling climate change a hoax. So clearly it is true. And that's one thing that I think uh, E. Jean Carroll's lawyers are going to focus on. Here, the, the kind of prong two is Donald Trump on his own has said these very despicable things that the number one reason why he did not rape E. Jean Carroll, it's just so reprehensible and disgusting for even for me to even say, but this is Donald Trump's words, quote, I'll say it with great respect. Number one, she's not my type. Number two, it never happened. It never happened. Okay, right? He's not saying number one, it never happened. He's saying number one is she's not my type. So E. Jean Carroll's lawyer during the opening statements going to say his number one reason, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, why he's saying that he couldn't have raped her is that he's saying E. Jean Carroll is not his type. But let's turn to page 81 and 82 of the deposition. In opening statements, you can show the deposition transcripts, whether E. Jean Carroll lawyers decide to show the deposition in the opening. And the video. Or, and the video. Yeah, and the video, you know, yeah. or hold it until a cross-exam of Donald Trump. But you go to page 81 and 82, and here's the question from E. Jean Carroll's lawyer. You have in front of you a black and white photograph that we marked as Exhibit 23, and I'm going to ask you, is this the photo that you were just referring to? Answer by Trump. I think so, yes. Question. And do you recall when you first saw this photo? Answer. At some point during the process, I saw it. I guess that's her husband, John Johnson, who was an anchor for NBC. Nice guy, I thought. I mean, I don't know him, but I thought he was pretty good at what he did. I don't even know the woman. I, I don't know who. Oh, it's Marla. Question. You're saying Marla is in this photo? And to be clear, Donald Trump is looking at a black and white photo with E. Jean Carroll in there with John Johnson. It's not and, and Wait, wait. And with his at then wife, Ivana is already in the photo. Yeah, Ivana is, stand, is right next <laughs> right. to Donald He Trump. has one he's wife looking, already in the photo. He's looking at E. Jean Carroll and with John Johnson. And so you have to give a lot of credit here to Carol's lawyer, Roberta Kaplan, because she knew she studied his mind so much that her question is right away, oh, you're saying Marla is in the photo referring to Marla Maples. And Donald Trump answers, that's Marla, pointing to E. Jean Carroll. He goes, that's Marla, yeah, that's my wife. And then Donald Trump points at her because we know that because the question is, which woman are you pointing to? And then Alina Haba jumps in and tries to coach Donald Trump and goes, no, that's Carol. And then Trump goes, oh, I see. And then E. Jean Carroll's lawyer goes, the person you just pointed to was E. Jean Carroll. And then Haba's trying to coach Trump, likely pointing at Ivana and saying, that's your wife. And then Roberta Kaplan goes, and the person, the woman on your right was, and then Donald Trump goes, I don't know. Th this was the picture. I, I assume that's John Johnson. And then Habba's coaching him. That's Carol. 
That's Carol. And then Trump goes, that's Carol? Like he's surprised. And the moment where Trump realizes, oh, crap, is where he goes, oh, I see. Because he's looking at E. Jean Carroll, who he swears looks just like Marla Maples. And he hadn't put together that that- Which she does, by the way. (laughs) And and then it all becomes kind of clear to him, oh, crap, that's E. Jean Carroll. And the photo's taken 30 years ago. Like, he couldn't figure that piece out and then then has that moment. Popak, you have those two prongs. This case is going to be a devastating case for Donald Trump and good. So let's remind everybody, April, two trials simultaneously in one consolidated case in front of one jury, defamation and civil rape brought by E. Jean Carroll. Full steam ahead. This kind of side issue about whether he has immunity because he made one of the defamatory comments while he was still president is not delaying either this this judge, Lewis Kaplan, this trial, or E. Jean Carroll's lawyer, Robbie Kaplan, no relation. Now, I love that we're getting drips and drabs of these excerpts. In fact, even the the latest little 40 pager that came out, little blast is not it's in sequence, but there's pages missing and you'd have to go back and like put them together. So I was getting to one part where I, I, I could tell what Robbie was doing in the way that she walked through the um, all of the photos she was trying to establish. And this is sort of geeky, but I liked it because, A, we've had Robbie Kaplan on our show. We interviewed her about right after the Dobbs decision, which we're going to talk about as we get to the end. It would happen to be the day the Dobbs decision was leaked, and we had Robbie Kaplan on the show to talk. We thought about E. Jean Carroll. Turned out we talked a lot about the Dobbs decision being leaked. But I loved, I you know, because you and I do this for a living, I loved watching the methodical way that he she walked him in to that corner, right? It's like the old the old joke about the way you boil a frog. You you don't throw him into a hot boiling water, you turn the water on slowly. And she was the heat on slowly and she was turning the heat on slowly. First she went through a series of photographs before she even got to the one that we're going to throw up on the screen when we do when we do the show uh, while we're doing the show of 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 the one you just walked over which is the the deadly devastating one about his credibility. This all goes to credibility. It's not a defense that he didn't think she was attractive. The reason we keep harping on this is that as you said in her opening Robbie Kaplan's going to talk about how not credible, incredible and uncredible Donald Trump is, that everything is a hoax, even things that normal thinking and sentient human beings believe are true, like global warming, like mail-in ballots, like that this is a word, a sloppy use of the word that he uses when he doesn't want to be pressed on something and it can't all be true. It makes him not credible. Because they need to destroy his credibility before he takes the stand in his own defense and the case. And before E. Jean Carroll takes the stand, because she's going to be witness number one. You know, she's the roadmap witness for her own case. It's, you know, when when the opening, when jury selection is done, opening statements are concluded. And Judge Kaplan looks at Robbie Kaplan's table and says, call your first witness. First witness is going to be, we call E. Jean Carroll. I mean, I can't imagine anything else. You don't call an adverse witness. She's not going to call Donald Trump. I mean, that would be really cocky, really ballsy. We'll have to watch that. But it's going to be E. Jean Carroll. So in her opening, she needs to destroy and shrink down Donald Trump and his veracity and his credibility. So she walked him through all these photographs. Is this you at Elaine's? Is this a restaurant that was very famous for for famous 
people and and the uh, and the writer class in New York at the time. Is this you in front of this building? Is this you as the Grand Marshal of the Veterans Day Parade? Yes, yes, yes. Any reason to believe these photographs aren't accurate when they say they were taken on a certain date? Any reason to believe they weren't taken on that date? No, that's me. That's me. That's me. That's me. He has no idea where this is going, by the way, at that point. I, I'm pretty sure he has no idea because I don't think Alita Hoppe properly prepared him for the deposition which also came out during the deposition. The lack of prep preparedness for him. How do you prepare him? He doesn't want to be prepared. You and I prepare witnesses all the time. I tell them, you know, you got to give me three full days before we do a seven-hour deposition because I got to get you prepared. I'm sure he gave her like an hour. So he had no idea. He just thought that, that Kaplan, the lawyer, Roberta Kaplan, was stroking his ego. Like, this is you. And this is another famous picture of you on the Daily Post. And here's you at the Friars Club doing a, a Steven Seagal roast. I mean, it really got really bizarre. And he's like, yes, that's me. That's me. That's me. Okay. Then she skips and does something else. Then she brings out the photo. Now, I, I'll give her the credit that you gave her, too. I think she knew this was going to happen. Because not that it matters. It, gets, it goes to credibility, not to a defense. But E. Jean Carroll when she was in her 40s, and E.G. Carroll, when she's 80, which is what she's 79 now, just like Donald Trump doesn't look the way he looks. So she looked, she's a very beautiful woman. She is now, and she was then. And I and that photo brought back memories for me because I used to watch her husband. I didn't realize that was her husband until this whole photo thing came out because uh, 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 John Johnson was very famous on Eyewitness News. He's also African-American, just to throw that in. And so the photo is... John Johnson, famous, is laughing, laughing, next to E. Jean Carroll, also kind of laughing. And that's, that's directly on. And then you have side view of Ivana, the then, the then wife, and the back of Donald Trump. So he's already got one wife in the photo. <laughs> he's got the one he's married to at the time, Ivana. So I guess there was a, a situation somewhere in his mind where Ivana met Marla, his second wife. <laughs> and he thought this was a photo where his his current wife and he met his future wife in Marla Mabel's, but that <laughs> but that was because there was a wife already in the photo, and, yeah. but that was E. Jean Carroll. And then I give her a lot of credit because I would have actually pushed back harder because I've had this happen to me when Alina Haba jumped in to try to save her client, which she's not supposed to do. She's not supposed to testify. She's not supposed to interfere. She's not supposed to corrupt the testimony. She jumped in and said, which you're not, and totally inappropriate. And she could have been sanctioned for it. She said out loud to her client under oath being deposed, that's Carol. Like not even like whispering, that's Carol. And he said, what? That's Carol? Let me see. Let me see that photo. Oh, now he figured out he'd been had. But I give, I give Robbie Kaplan credit because I would have jumped up and down and said, that is completely inappropriate. Don't interfere. Don't say anything. You're not here to testify or coach your witness. I've done that. You've done that. She didn't do that. She let it go because she had him already. So she didn't care. <laughs> the fact that it got corrected at the end, she had already made her point that she's going to use in the opening and in the closing and throughout, that he can't be trusted, that he's not credible, that he'll say anything in order to win the case. And that's all she's got to do in front of a New York jury or any jury. So I, I thought it was, I thought that aspect of it was fascinating. It also shows you he's, he's, you know, he attacks Joe Biden constantly for being 80 and being addle brained. That was a moment of being addle brained by Donald Trump, one of many, 
where he couldn't figure out who was in a photo and mistook E. Jean Carroll for Marla Maples. And in his own fantasy world, he's like, yeah, this is where my ex-wife and my current wife met at, a, at an event. I mean, he's so, you know, effing out of his mind. And look, Roberta Kaplan, is she played it perfectly because she wants to show the video how Alina Haba coached the witness. So she wants to play that entire thing through and she's not going to object to it. And then she's going to tell the jury in the closing, look, you saw the lawyer in the deposition coach him to let him know. I think Eugene, I think Eugene Carroll's lawyer, Roberta Kaplan also like as a lawyer, you prepare if, if Donald Trump recognized that as Eugene, the photo of Eugene Carroll recognized her as Eugene Carroll, um, she would have said, is that the photo that you saw recently? And to try to let Donald Trump know that that was a photo from 30 years ago. Did you know that's what she looked like 30 years ago? Have you seen other photographs of her from that time? I think she had those questions ready to go, but she didn't have to even go there. I agree with you. Be, I, I, totally, because, I totally agree with you. Because yeah. he gave her more than what she even right. right. We, we We've got a lot more to discuss here on Legal AF. Popak, I want you to go uh, over this scathing DeSantis uh, order by a federal judge going back to Florida. So I want to talk about that. I want to talk about this so-called investigation that the Supreme Court did into who leaked the Dobbs decision and then touch a little bit on Peter Navarro. Uh, but first, I want to talk about one of our sponsors. It's Miracle Made Sheets. I love Miracle Made. Whether you want to get more fit, be a better parent, or get more done at work, there is one thing that will help, and that's better sleep with miracle made sheets you can tap into the power of self-cooling temperature regulation which has been shown to improve sleep quality by up to 34 percent one of the things that i love about these miracle sheets is the self-cooling properties for better quality sleep using silver infused fabrics originally developed by nasa Miracle-made sheets are thermoregulating and designed to keep you at the perfect temperature all night long so you get better sleep every night. And they're luxurious comfort and quality combined in one. I think they're very luxuriously comfortable and without the high price tag of other luxury brands. And it's good for your skin, better for your skin. Stop sleeping on bacteria. Clean sheets means less bacteria to clog your pores and fewer breakouts and other skin problems. So please go to trymiracle.com slash legal AF. That's T-R-Y-M-I-R-A-C-L-E.com slash legal AF and try it today. And we've got a very, very special deal for our listeners and viewers. Save over 40% and be sure to use our promo code legal AF at checkout to save even more and get three free towels. Again, go to trymiracle.com slash legal AF. Use the code legal AF and get those incredible savings that we're offering here. And Miracle is so confident in their product. It's backed with a 30-day money-back guarantee. 
So if you aren't 100% satisfied, you'll get a full refund. Upgrade your sleep with Miracle Made. Go to trymiracle.com slash legalaf and use the code legalaf to claim your free three-piece towel set and save over 40% off. Again, that's trymiracle.com slash legalaf to treat yourself. Thank you, Miracle Made, for sponsoring this episode of Legal AF. And I want to give a special shout out to our other sponsor, Highland Titles. Another interesting legal fact comes all the way from Scotland and our show sponsors Highland Titles. Scotland has legally defined souvenir plots of land. These gift size plots are so small that they are recognized as a novelty. Unlike regular plots of land, souvenir plots can be purchased for less than $50 without the need for involving lawyers. Highland Titles has been selling souvenir plots of land as a gift since 2006, and they have more than 400,000 customers. The really cool part about becoming a landowner in Scotland is the tradition of affording Scottish landowners a courtesy title. You can buy one square foot of land in the beautiful Scottish Highlands for less than $50 and become a laird, lord, or lady. Customers receive a luxury personalized gift pack and a uniquely identified plot of land, which forms part of the Highland Titles Nature Reserve. This is one of the most popular nature reserves in Scotland. You can also buy two plots of land side by side, which would make a terrific gift for Valentine's Day, especially since the Scottish Highlands are renowned for their beauty and widely regarded as one of the most romantic locations on the planet. Good holiday gift, Visit www.highlandtitles.com, spelled H-I-G-H-L-A-N-D-T-I-T-L-E-S.com, www.highlandtitles.com for more information on the everlasting gift of Scottish land. And use the discount code LegalAF to receive 20% off your order. That's the LegalAF as your uh, discount code, LegalAF and receive 20% off your order, go to highlandtitles.com. Popak, you seem like a like a lord. You know, it would be a nice gift. If you got a gift and you became a lord, it would, come on, it would at least be kind of like a, it would be it would be a fun little gift. But anyway. Like Sir Popak. Speaking of fun little gifts, here's a fun big gift, Popak, and I want you to break it down for us because you've got the Florida bona fides, and this is a federal judge, Judge Hinkle, uh, who had a very scathing order about a Hillsborough prosecutor who um, who Ron DeSantis suspended. Um, Ron DeSantis suspended him because DeSantis was looking for someone who he could label woke to do the kind of performative thing that they do and say, I'm suspending him at too woke. And they found this prosecutor in, in Hillsborough who was elected by the people, you know, of Hillsborough County. Um, and, and all the prosecutor said was, look, he signed a petition, by the way, in his like personal capacity. He never said that he would never prosecute, um, you know, certain cases. And there was never a case that even came before him where you could even make a finding that there was a dereliction of duty because the very situation 
never even came before him. And prosecutors have what's called prosecutorial discretion, as Judge Hinkle pointed out. But he signed a petition saying, look, I don't think we should be criminalizing abortion. I don't feel comfortable arresting women who go and uh, have abortions. I, I, I don't feel comfortable with that. A woman should have control over her body and prosecutors should not be the ones uh, locking women up for that. And for that, DeSantis says, too woke, too woke and suspends them um, under certain provisions of the Florida Constitution, which are invalid. He doesn't have the right to do it, but he invokes these provisions. And so, you know, this case goes before a federal judge because the prosecutor files the lawsuit saying that he violated, that DeSantis violated his constitutional rights. And Popak, tell us what happened. Yep. And I did a nice uh, hot take on this uh, that's actually running right now, but let me let me break it down. This is the difference when you have a Democratic appointed federal judge in judge, senior status judge Hinkle in the Northern District of Florida, up by Tallahassee, um, where this Hillsborough County, which is near Tampa, so these are on opposite sides of the state almost, Tampa on the West Coast, South, and uh, Northern District of Florida, up to the very top of the state, um, close to the border with Georgia. So these are two different places. And the reason that he sued Adam Warren, the removed or suspended prosecutor, state attorney for Hillsborough County, is because I think it's because that's where the governor resides up towards that part in Tallahassee, Florida. He didn't go to state court. He went to federal court and he alleged in his suit that he was he was suspended from office improperly by the governor of the state because he expressed his First Amendment rights, free speech, about signing on to some memos of some progressive prosecutorial entities that operate in, in the country, that he's a progressive prosecutor. He was elected as a Democrat on, the, on a platform of being a progressive Democrat. And there's nothing, as you said, in his track record or anything that the the um, governor could point to at all that suggested that he was um, not doing his job, that he was that he was um, incompetent or that he had done things uh, that warrant his being suspended under the very narrow grounds that allow for suspension. Quite the opposite. He had a very good track record. He supervised over 130 prosecutors as the state attorney for that county. He, he was elected. Uh, by the people of that county. But there was, just to set a little bit of the stage, our listeners and followers and viewers may remember that um, over a year ago or so, when there was a wave, um, or actually it was during the, uh, was that, we're going on two years now, um, when there was a wave of um, um, elected prosecutors who got into office, like Alvin Bragg in New York, like this guy, uh, Adam Warren, and like others around the country, a lot of them were seen as and were identified, self-identified as progressive prosecutors. Okay, that's fine. And they have their own views. Alvin Bragg got a little bit of hot water when he did a first day memo two years ago saying what crime he would or would not prosecute using his prosecutorial discretion. Warren wasn't that quite as bold, but he did let it be known after the Dobbs decision, which we're going to talk about next, got leaked. Um, and, and of course, DeSantis got right behind taking away and ripping away a woman's right to choose that while he didn't have an abortion case in front of him to, 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 to decide whether it was going to be prosecuted or not, that he would use his prosecutorial discretion 
um, and um, decide on a case-by-case basis whether he was going to do that. As he said, police make the arrests, but prosecutors make the decision based on prosecutorial discretion as to whether they are going to prosecute a certain crime. Did he take money in his campaign from George Soros? Probably. George Soros decided, who is a very infamous, well-known Democratic fundraiser who supports all Democratic positions at every all along the spectrum of Democratic positions, um, he decided that he wanted to focus on getting progressive prosecutors into positions to change the justice system. You and I know a couple of them. Um, Karen knows a couple of them. I mean, Lucy Lang is very public and she's been on our show and she ran for that position in in Manhattan and she's a progressive prosecutor and believes in the reform of criminal justice as many of these people do. So DeSantis decided that he was going to do a witch hunt led by one of his chief advisors. This is all in the decision by the judge to go find woke prosecutors, whatever that means, and get them out of office and suspend them because they're woke, because they're exercising their First Amendment rights, because he doesn't like them, because they're Democrats, which you're which you're not allowed to do. Whereas Judge Hinkle said in his order, a governor is often saddled with prosecutors he doesn't like from a different party. It doesn't mean you have the right to suspend them or remove them. And they can't remove them. There's almost no provision in, in a Florida statute or constitutional law that gives the governor the right to remove, but he's got like this narrow ability to suspend. Now, what I said at the top of our show, I want to make I want to bring it home now. If this was a MAGA Republican judge, we never would have had a trial. This was a full bench trial that went on for days where DeSantis and other, not DeSantis, but those around DeSantis had to testify. Adam Warren testified, cross-examined, evidence came out, judge had a full record to make his decision. Instead, a MAGA right-wing Republican judge would have looked at it and said, you know, under the 11th Amendment, which you and I never talk about, the 11th Amendment of the Constitution, which has been interpreted by the U.S. Supreme Court, despite what it says, literally, and we'll put it up on the board. Literally, it says that a, that a, a, a citizen of one state can't sue another state in federal court. And I'll talk about the history of that in a minute. It got, it got morphed and, and moved and, and altered by Supreme Court precedent to mean not what it exactly says, but to mean something a little bit different. The precedent now says that any state can't be sued in federal court, almost except where Congress has allowed it, and that's only in very, very narrow circumstances, not relevant here. Why? Why is that part of our judicial history? Because when the founding fathers and the framers of our Constitution put in the section about the judges, the, the, the judicial branch, what we call Article Three of the Constitution, the states were very up, were very worried and up in arms about whether the federal government, this new federal government, was going to use their federal court system to punish states and to drag states over to the federal side and make them answer for whatever bad things that they had done, but in federal court. They didn't want that. And so after Article Three was already part of the Constitution, in one of the next set of amendments, not the first, not the first 10 amendments, which we call the Bill of Rights, but number 11, <laughs> and there was a kind of a correction that was done very, very quickly, which Judge Hinkle talked about, in which they, they said, no, okay, we'll make this clear. Because we never, the framers never intended, according to legislative history, to allow states to be sued in, in the federal court for their own conduct. And so we'll make it clear in the 11th Amendment that that's not going to happen. And the states can lower their temperature and don't worry about it. 
we'll take care of it the 11th Amendment. Now, the 11th Amendment was kind of sloppily drafted, so the legislative history says, and it had to be fixed by Supreme Court precedent in the 1800s, early 1800s, which brought us now to what is the body of law under the 11th Amendment that a state can't be sued in federal government, in the federal courthouse, by anybody of any state of their own or of another state. Which Okay, so let's bring it, let's bring it home. Why is Judge Hinkle hearing this case if under the 11th Amendment he has no jurisdiction? A MAGA Republican judge would have said, I don't have jurisdiction and I'm not doing the trial. But Hinkle wanted the trial because he had already seen enough evidence in pretrial practice to suggest that, that DeSantis had done something underhanded and unscrupulous and that the facts were going to bear that out. So he says, you know what? I'm going to, I want a full record in front of me before I make the decision about the 11th Amendment application. Let's get the facts. And then he wrote, you know, like a 30 or 40 page opinion where he said, DeSantis violated the Florida Constitution, violated the federal Constitution, violated the First Amendment rights of Adam Warren, created a hit squad, a witch hunt, used one of his people to go after woke prosecutors, whatever that meant, just because he didn't like them. There was nothing that supported his uh, suspending Adam Warren or anybody else because they weren't incompetent and, they, and, the, and the grounds to suspend him were not present. And so everyone's like, yay, that's great. We love that part of the opinion. And then in the last paragraph, <laughs> after 48 pages of going through the entire process that I just laid out, he said, but I got a problem. I have an 11th Amendment problem. I can't give Mr. Warren what he wants, which is to be reinstated as the Hillsborough County State Attorney because I'm powerless to do that as a federal judge because he's in the wrong courthouse and, and he's suing a state. He's suing DeSantis and a state, and I can't do it. He could have led with that and cut off the whole thing, but he wanted, like Middlebrooks, he wanted an entire, um, the whole Megillah of all the bad acts of DeSantis in there, in a federal court order to be cited by other people in the future. Now, Warren has got two choices. He either refiles the case, at least part of the case, in state court, either in Hillsborough County or up in Tallahassee in Leon County. Or he can do that. Or he just runs for office again and takes out the, the, the person that DeSantis put in his place and let the voters of Hillsborough, who probably are not that pleased in Tampa that DeSantis did this as part of his attempt to raise money because that was the other interesting thing, Ben. I don't know if you caught this. The judge said that I find it interesting that DeSantis's own office calculated that the publicity benefit of having Adam Warren taken out, dragged out of his office by the police, which is what DeSantis did. He didn't even give him the dignity and the courtesy of letting him, you know, leave office, not show up the next day, change the locks. They sent the Florida Department of, of Law Enforcement, the FDLE, in state troopers in to pull him out, do a perp walk, which he then used, DeSantis then used on, and all of his spokespeople, on a right-wing media to, to talk about going after woke prosecutors. And rate, and they say the value of that, and they calculated it internally for DeSantis, was $2.4 million worth of publicity, which is the reason the judge said that the real reason he did it was to um, uh, run for office one day as president and get this free publicity for going after improperly, unconstitutionally prosecutors that he didn't agree with and parties he didn't agree with. And it was a scathing order, Popak, where Judge Hinkle said that DeSantis clearly violated the Constitution. He stated that even the most basic, 
basic of diligence, if one was ever conducted, which it wasn't, by the governor's office, would have showed that Andrew Warren was um, able to exercise his prosecutorial discretion, engaged in no misconduct at all, never had any blanket policies about not prosecuting certain crimes, that certain crimes never even came before him to be prosecuted, um, that there was no dereliction of duty. But ultimately, there is no, uh, there was no remedy because, as you mentioned, uh, the 11th Amendment, as it's been interpreted, um, divests the court of jurisdiction. And so DeSantis was cheering this on like this was a win for him. Like DeSantis responded, we won. The judge dismissed the case, which just goes to show you how Orwellian and kind of dystopian it is where it was a scathing order, yet they frame it as a win. It, it almost reminds you of when Bill Barr um, got the Mueller report and framed it as a win. Look, the Mueller report has showed that we did nothing wrong, like the exact opposite, but it's those fascist Orwellian tactics that are at play. So what happens next ultimately is it goes before the Senate uh, in Florida and they have to make a decision. Like It's not like this legal decision goes before the Senate, but it now informs the decision because ultimately the Senate can make determinations about suspensions like this, but where they are captured by the kind of same MAGA Republican forces or the DeSantis kind of forces there, you know, they, they, they can claim that they're for the rule of law all they want to, but here they're presented with a judicial order and they are unlikely to actually enforce the law. And so then you may ask at home, well, if there is no remedy in, in a federal judicial setting in the very unique circumstance like this, and the Flor Florida State Senate's not willing to do anything, you know, then, well, then what do we do? And the answer is, it, it, it's why we have to speak loud about democracy. That may not be the answer that you, that you wanted, but where you have legislating legislatures that are captured by kind of these fascistic forces, um, and you have these very strange interpretations of the Constitution, strange putting it gently, um, that would provide this incongruity where a state prosecutor can't get federal relief against the state governor um, in this unique situation, there's really, there may not be ultimately um, a remedy here. And then some people say, well, could he file a wrongful termination lawsuit? Well, technically, the prosecutor's not an employee. So you, you know, and he's still suspended versus terminated. So you would still then kind of get into, as, as someone who's not an employee, as someone who's elected, what can, what are those rights and remedies? And I think you're in new, kind of new areas of the law that we'll see and of course we'll follow here, but it shows you the complexity at at issue. And something that I don't really think is all that complex, Popak, but I think we should just touch upon it for for just a few minutes here, is this uh investigation, so-called investigation by the United States Supreme Court. They empowered their marshal's office within the Supreme Court to investigate who may have leaked the Dobbs decision, which ultimately overturned Roe v. Wade when it was released in late June. The leak occurred in early May to Politico. You know, the leak would only, the leak would only benefit uh, someone who wanted to stop 
the deliberative process that takes place in the Supreme Court uh, as they kind of talk about their opinions before there's a final opinion. So for those out there who kind of want to know the sausage making behind a Supreme Court opinion, there are drafts that get circulated. And until a final opinion is issued, justices are trying to convince other justices to change their mind and maybe change uh, portions of an opinion or, you know, for example, in the Dobbs decision, which uh, addressed a specific state law um, in uh, Mississippi and what their specific uh, length was where they were saying that they would ban abortions versus actually overturning Roe v. Wade. Perhaps some of the pro-democracy judges on there, or the, the three judges who support a woman's right to control decisions over uh, her body, that they could say, look, don't go as far as you're going to go to overturn Roe v. Wade. And so there's negotiations and deliberations that take place. But once a decision is kind of leaked, which is fairly, uh, which is un- unprecedented, it, it freezes the deliberations because you really couldn't change the decision after the public knows what it is because it would basically seem like you're just uh, responding to public pressure versus actually the deliberative process at issue. So all of that becomes chilled. So I talk about that because ultimately the motivation for who would leak it would be someone who wanted to stop the deliberation amongst the Supreme Court justices so that the decision could be changed. Someone would want to freeze it so that the decision can't be changed. That's why you would leak it. So the motivation is someone who wanted the decision to be the decision that was in the draft and to have no changes. So to me, that's why it clearly would make no sense for any of the uh, judges or anyone who affiliated with the judges who wanted the who wanted Roe v. Wade to remain the law of the land, which it should have been and which it should be, to ever leak that opinion. Everybody would know that. And what we've also learned through uh, this one particular evangelical, former evangelical leader, who's really exposed the collusion that's taken place between uh, the evangelical leadership and the Supreme Court, that that this whistleblower uh, exposed and said, hey, I would set up these meetings with justices and these leaders at the homes of these leaders. You know, they would give donations to the group and I would give access to Supreme Court justices like Justice Alito. And this whistleblower said back in 2014 or 2015, whatever the Hobby Lobby uh, decision uh, was issued, which basically where the Supreme Court said that um, you know private employers don't have to provide health care relating to birth control or, or, or the types of stuff that women should have to control their own bodies, um, that that decision was told to the people at this dinner party by Samuel Alito. And there are contemporaneous emails and text messages around the time that seem to reflect that the people had dinner with Samuel Alito. They got info from Samuel Alito. They said, hey, he gave us the big news. Let's talk by phone. And then a few weeks later or days later, the Hobby Lobby decision comes out, which corroborates you know, the whistleblower story that Alito had told them what the outcome of the decision was going to be at this dinner. And so it would seem to be somebody like an Alito. That's why I said at the beginning, I can give you Alito hint who would likely leak this. But one of the things we've learned about the so-called investigation, though, is that the Supreme Court justices themselves 
did not have the same scrutiny as all the other employees. They did not have to sign affidavits testifying under uh, attesting under penalty of perjury that they were not the leakers. And the same intrusiveness on the types of searches and devices and things like that were not done with the actual justices. And so I don't know if there's much to cover on it, Popak, but they basically said, they don't know who the leaker is. They've engaged in all this diligence. They had the former uh, Secretary of Homeland Security, Michael Chertoff, look at it. And Chertoff said, oh, looks like the marshal did a diligent job. I don't know. The whole thing reeks of a cover-up to me. Well, yeah, I, that's a having read Chertoff, Michael Chertoff, who was a, a judge, a prosecutor, and Homeland Security chief, who apparently uh, uh, the chief judge reached out to to, to take a look at the marshal's report and decide whether more had to be done. That is a report and a conclusion uh, that um, is is of a body that didn't want to get to the bottom of the answer. Yep. Be because there was plenty of leads that were in there. For instance, Michael Chertoff said in his report of the report, his critique of the report by the marshal, that there were enough people who testified under oath because they interviewed 90 people. First of all, they identified that over 80 people had their hands on a draft of Dobbs, which is an extraordinary number. I never would have thought, you know, even if you add up all the law clerks and the judges, it's not 82 people. There are 82 people who at one point had a draft of Dobbs that could have been the leakers. A number of them admitted they treated that draft differently than they had treated other drafts of other decisions that they had put their hands on. That's interesting. That would lead to follow-ups if you really wanted to get to the bottom of it. They also testified when they were investigated, that they often told their loved ones and friends about things that they worked on, including the Dobbs decision, which is also weird. Um, they were unable to figure out from a review of printer logs, whether things got printed out at home or scan logs, whether they got scanned. It could have been the clerk. It could have been the roommate of the clerk. They have no idea. And interestingly, even though Marshall, um, uh, Judge Roberts draws a line under the whole thing and says it's really over, it's not. Because it, in the same breath, he says that there are other leads that the Marshall's office is still investigating and they have our full support. You are totally right. And you and I have talked about this at length. And we have a different position than the mainstream media about why the leak happened, starting with the why the leak happened. It's exactly, I, I agree with you, it's exactly what you laid out. It was a way to try to cut the legs out from John Roberts, who would have, based on what we know about John Roberts and prior decisions, would have worked the hallways of the Supreme Court to try to save as much of Roe v. Wade as possible. We kind of know that from his background and other places where he's done it, including trying to save Obamacare and the like. But the leak of this draft froze in time any of those efforts and made it almost impossible to do that, to circulate competing drafts, to, to change what was in there. And we saw the final order was almost identical to what was drafted. So like you said, the person that wants to um, freeze it, and so there's no deliberative process, and cut uh, uh, John Roberts' legs out from under him and his ability to negotiate to the center, that's that's your that's your uh, target. That's who you should be going after. The mainstream media has said things like, "Oh, it was an effort, maybe by a right wing clerk, to socialize that the big decision was coming to take away Roe versus Wade." No, that makes absolutely no sense. What you said, what I've said, makes 
makes perfect sense. And so this is just a wallpaper over there. They never really wanted to get to the bottom of the problem. If this was a corporation, they would have gotten to the bottom of it. And even Chertoff said, look, you got a lot of belt tightening to do at the Supreme Court. You don't know who's printing these things out. You need to change that. You don't, you don't have printer logs. You don't have scan logs. You really don't have a chain of custody to understand how these 82 people and sometimes multiple drafts for each of these 82 people and the chain of custody, you don't know where they're going. Doc, your document control is terrible. Your version control is terrible. You know, he gave them a real critique. Marshall, you know, uh, Roberts didn't say off the Marshall's report and Chertoff's report, I'm going to make all these changes. I also thought, I don't know what you thought, last, last point about this thing. Chertoff citing to the law clerk ethics canons. See, the law clerks have ethical rules they need to follow, but the, the justices of the Supreme Court don't. That's the problem. So he said, oh, this, this would have violated canon three of the law clerk's ethics because they blah, blah. Yeah, the, the thing you can't cite is anything that would have bound the justices to anything. So they didn't want to get to the bottom of it. But then you got crazy Donald Trump, which I know you talked about in one of your trending takes. Donald Trump going on social media saying, put Politico, which is where, uh, which broke the story and got the leak. Put Politico editor in jail. Put the publisher in jail. Put the reporter in jail. We got to get to the bottom of it. By the way, I don't know why he wants to get to the bottom of it because it helped him because it's exactly what he wanted to have happen. He wanted to have a woman's right to choose after 50 years in our U.S. constitutional as a right ripped away from women. Why is he so upset? The reason that it that that Dobbs became Dobbs is because it got leaked to Politico. So this this false narrative that Donald Trump loves to have, where he's I don't know the protector of the First Amendment, it was the best thing that ever could happen to him oh, because it, it took away a political issue. Popak, popak, popak. He hates <laughs> the Supreme Court because they gave his taxes to the House Ways and Means Committee. <laughs> that it, it it all is it all and and he hates. And even though he appointed those Supreme Court justices, he blames the Dobbs decision on making him look bad because he blames that as one of the reasons that his endorsed candidates did not win. It, it, it's all a malignant, narcissistic thing when he hates the Supreme Court because, because of their recent rulings about him. So that's why he wants to attack the Supreme Court. And he can tie in a little fascism there about arresting the Politico reporters and his hatred of the media. So he kind of gets a twofer when you analyze can that. I, can I, throw a, well, I totally agree with you. I, I love your I love your condescending popuck, popuck, popuck. You're so naive. But having, having said that, there was a great line in Middlebrooks is just rounding out and, and drawing a line through all of our segments today on the podcast. Middlebrooks said um, about the media, the media, the reporters write the first draft of history. They have a tremendous important role that our founding fathers saw and our framers saw. And so you have Middlebrooks on the one hand saying, Reporters do God's work and do the first draft of history. And then the tyrant, Donald Trump, in the same week saying, put him in jail, arrest the publisher, arrest him, which is exactly the opposite of what our founding fathers wanted um, from really the, the very early Supreme Court decisions for the for the new U.S. Supreme Court were over the freedom of press and the right of, of journalists to do their job and to bring sunshine um, uh, and, and transparency to, and hold leaders accountable as a result. I mean, just 
Donald Trump fails history 101 time and time again. It was definitely, I wouldn't say it was condescending. It was more coalescing. It was bringing together <laughs> a lot of concepts here. And then I, I do want to touch just super briefly just to give everybody an update because I've, I've gotten some messages. What's going on with that Peter Navarro, the MAGA extremist who worked uh, in the Trump administration? He's uh, been charged with contempt of Congress for not showing up to the January 6th committee's subpoenas. That trial is set for January 30th. He's filed, as, as they often do, these, these pretty meritless uh, motions. He filed a motion to dismiss saying, Selective prosecution, the separation of powers have been violated with his previous role in the executive branch. He claimed that he was following the uh, assertions by Donald Trump of executive privilege. And the court kind of made it very clear. Uh, first off, Trump didn't even assert executive privilege with you. So he kind of threw you out here uh, to the to the lion's den. But in, 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 in any event, you deserve it. And as uh, Judge Amit Mehta, the presiding judge who's overseeing the case, said, quote, uh, defendant Peter Navarro apparently believes the law applies differently to him, which just about sums it up. And in denying Navarro's motion to dismiss, uh, Judge Amit Mehta also granted the Department of Justice's motions to exclude him from saying all these ridiculous uh, arguments in, in court by saying Trump told me to do it. And I was following, you know, I was following Trump's advice, which we've talked about here, the public authority defense. I was just following lawful orders. All that BS is not coming in. Navarro just got destroyed in this motion to dismiss. And I think it's going to be a very simple trial like Bannon's trial where did you get the subpoena? Yes. Did you show up? No. All right. We rest our case. That was kind of the that was kind of the Bannon case. Uh, and I expect Navarro to be convicted um, and I expect uh, uh, Navarro to we'll be then talking about Navarro being sentenced. Anything else you want to add there on Navarro though, Popak? I just no, wanted to give people. No, other than it's, we, we tie them together with Bannon because Bannon has an appeal that will impact Navarro. Bannon's appeal and he's out on appeal as we all are upset about. Uh, and he's not been sentenced because of the appeal is on the very same case, this Licavoli case we've talked about at length from the 1960s and whether that is the prevailing precedent, whether the Supreme Court wants it to be the prevailing precedent for what happens when somebody uh, thumbs their nose and flouts an order of the or subpoena of the uh, of Congress and refuses to appear because they claim some sort of connection to a president. So that's going to have an impact. But right now, Meta is using the same body of law that um, that that Judge Nichols used, and his position is it's it's the law in the books, it's the good law, and we're going to trial on that good law. I don't think that I think the trial is going to happen before. We get through the Bannon appellate process, and so it may ha it may if if Bannon wins somehow through the Supreme Court, it'll help it'll help um, uh, Navarro, but it won't help him avoid this trial or or the almost certain conviction <laughs> that he's going as you laid out so eloquently in a two day trial that is going to happen. Well, the I think the Navarro outcome is going to happen before the appeal, considering it's nine or ten days from now. So I think right. we will we will we will see Navarro. Bannon has been sentenced; he hasn't served yet uh, the four months that he has been sentenced to, pending his appeal. That's been stayed, um, and as you did in another uh, hot take, that we will 
talk about more as uh, Bannon's other trial nears, though it's the prosecution against Bannon uh, in New York State for state law violations from the We Build the Wall scam, where Bannon is alleged to have stolen uh, huge amounts of money from people claiming it was going to build the wall that Trump said that Mexico was going to pay for. Of course, Bannon was charged uh, by the Department of Justice for uh, the unlawful conduct and then uh, Donald Trump in his pardoning of all of the uh, criminals who have worked for him. Uh, Bannon received one of those pardons. So a lot to discuss as we proceed with legal AF and certainly, as I said, coalescing, not condescending. One of the things that are all coalescing is for Jack Smith because Jack Smith seeing a very weak and desperate Donald Trump here um, from all sides right now, and that Donald Trump is not a Teflon Don. He is a weak coward, traitor Don, who can be easily defeated. And I think to wrap this all up, special counsel Jack Smith is taking notice of all of this. And I will be very thrilled to report when those indictments happen, which I still predict April, May, others predict sooner, but I think that I, I, I feel, I feel kind of confident that it's an April, May time period. I would be surprised if it didn't happen. Thank you everybody for watching this episode of Legal AF. Uh, make sure you subscribe to our Patreon account and we've got big news about Patreon. So listen up just for one moment. Uh, if you're watching this live on Saturday, Sunday, 9 a.m., we are doing an exclusive Patreon Zoom chat with all of our patrons. So if you are a member of Patreon, go to patreon.com slash Midas Touch right now before it's too late and become a member on one of the membership packages so you could see the Zoom that I'm going to be doing with me and my two younger brothers, Popak. Don't worry, I'm not making you work tomorrow. It's going to be Brett and Jordy and myself <laughs> as we unveil the future plan of the Midas Touch Network and take questions from all of you um, exclusively on our Patreon Zoom tomorrow. So go to patreon.com slash Midas Touch. Become a member now so you can join that exclusive Zoom chat. Also, check us out at store.midastouch.com for the best pro-democracy gear and legal AF gear, store.midastouch.com. I want to thank our sponsors for supporting our work, Highland Titles, www.highlandtitles.com and use the discount code LEGALAF to receive 20% off your order. And Miracle Made Sheets, go get your great sheets. Go to trymiracle.com slash LEGALAF and then use the code LEGALAF for great discounts there. Thank you all to the Legal AFers, the Midas Mighty. None of this is possible without you. We are so grateful for this incredible pro-democracy community. Um, again, I, I wake up every day inspired by, by each and every one of you. Let's keep fighting for our democracy. Let's keep learning the law. Let's keep talking about the most consequential legal news of the week of our time right here on Legal AF. I'm joined by Michael Popak. My name is Ben Micellis. Until next time, shout out to the Midas Mighty.